Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in productivity and career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and glad to help you on your journey towards senior leadership in the charitable world. Thanks for listening, and if you're a current nonprofit leader or hope to be one, you're in the right place. I'm glad to bring you these weekly conversations with nonprofit leaders who are really on the cutting edge of our sector. And if you would do me a favor, share this episode with one other person so we can continue to build a global community focused on nonprofit leadership. And speaking of nonprofit leadership, I had a fantastic conversation in this episode with Lauren Weaver, who brings experience as a former business owner, author, trainer, and coach, and she now leads a nonprofit. It's the Greenville Area Parkinson Society, which is in the Greenville-Spartanburg region of South Carolina. I know many of you listening have also brought skills and experience from your for-profit days to help you now lead a nonprofit, and Lauren has great advice along those exact lines. We talked about how her experiences helped her get started as a nonprofit leader, but also some of the barriers she's had to overcome. And we hit a host of the nonprofit leadership headlines, fundraising, board development, hiring talent, and of course, maintaining your own professional development plan. Lots of great takeaways here, so don't forget to check out the show notes. This is episode number 91. Just go to the podcast or the news page at PattonMcDowell.com, and you'll find out all of the resources we talk about, as well as more information on Lauren and the great work she's doing at the Greenville Area Parkinson Society. Speaking of resources, while you're on our website, make sure you connect with us. Get on our email list so you'll receive our free weekly resources and let us help you build your nonprofit strategic plan, or maybe we can help you re-engage your board, or maybe it's time to help you determine your next step toward nonprofit leadership through one of our coaching, training, or mastermind programs. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Lauren Weaver. Lauren, thank you for joining me on the path. Oh, Pat, I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm delighted to have this conversation with you, Lauren. You have a fascinating journey to nonprofit leadership. And I know our listeners, both those that are currently executives in non- the nonprofit sector and those that want to be, are going to learn from things you've picked up and are willing to share with us. So before we get into your journey and those uh, nuggets of wisdom that you'll share, um, let's start with the organization with which you work now, the Greenville Area Parks Society. Tell us what that is and what you do there. Certainly. Uh, we, the Greenville Area Parkinson Society, better known as GAPS, because that is a mouthful to try right. to um, You know, one of the, the most important thing I share with people about it is that it is a 100% local organization. It was one of the grassroots started by two local gentlemen who just saw the need. That was in 2012. It morphed out of a just a social group, you know, people like-minded that were trying to get together to support each other. And um, we are now, when we, let's say it's 2016, I started in this role and we were serving a couple hundred people. And now we serve about 1,500 um, people in Greenville County. And it is just about support. You know, our, our motto is we walk with you and we're not trying to cure Parkinson's. We are not medication. We're not research, but you don't die from Parkinson's disease. You die 
with Parkinson's disease, which means you live with Parkinson's disease for sometimes 20 plus years. So it becomes a new normal for the person who's diagnosed and also for their whole family, uh, kids who grow up with a parent that's living with this disease. And so that new normal has a lot of obstacles and challenges. And that's where we come in, whether it's providing education about the disease or about combating the symptoms, um, if it's about what's the latest thing out there. So whatever that education is, we can help them with connecting them with other people that are walking the same journey. So offering that support exercise is critical for people with Parkinson's. So we partner with a lot of local organizations that offer specific exercise programs and developed, we have over several hundred relationships with other people in the upstate that serve the Parkinson's community. Cause that's another thing. It is second only to Alzheimer's. And yet most people know almost nothing about Parkinson's until they're personally impacted. And so educating the general population has also been a big goal of mine. Um, people will go 10 years without a diagnosis just because they're not aware of what those early onset symptoms look like. So we do a lot with education, both in our membership base and throughout the community, as well as just being the people walking alongside this, these neighbors of ours that have this, this new challenge in their life. I love how you describe that. And of course, I'm personally grateful because like many of our listeners, I've been touched by Parkinson, a grandmother, uh, no longer with us now, but uh, that was my introduction and to uh, this disease. And you put it so well that we we don't, I think, understand. It's, it's not fully understood. And that's why the work of GAPS is so important, I think, to educate, as you suggest. I, I'm guessing, Lauren, the challenges of this kind of pandemic situation make some of your programming harder. But how have you kind of maneuvered the, the good work you do through a virtual environment? And how have you personally kind of adapted to being in this virtual environment? Well, absolutely. One of the biggest challenges people with Parkinson's deal with is isolationism and depression that comes from that isolationism. So you can only imagine what this past year has done um, to the members, <laughs> just in they're already dealing with that. And then it's completely exacerbated by the external circumstances. So that is a huge concern of ours because they're already feeling so isolated and alone. And now they can't even leave the house or even have grandkids come in. And so that's been really trying. Um, imagine, right. It, I, right. I mean, all of us have felt it, but now take that and magnify it because you already have this, this challenge within your disease. So the first thing, you know, I'll kind of break that into two pieces. As far as our programming, I have such an unbelievable staff that is so flexible and so capable of just pivoting that we did. We pivoted all of our programs except for one to a virtual platform. And actually last year through doing things virtually, we saw some gaps, not to be punny about that, but we saw some holes in our programming <laughs> um, that, that we didn't realize were there until we started really looking at things with such this focused lens of the virtual um, platform. So we started a bereavement group uh, for some of our members. Uh, we started what we call GAPS Connection. We make phone calls to all 1,500 members 
uh, once a quarter just to check in because they're not tech savvy. Exactly. Um, we got a grant for a um, technology education program where we purchased iPads and we hired a consultant and he goes one-on-one -on -one to homes to let them borrow them for a month, teach them how to use it, how to get on Facebook, FaceTime, how to get on Zoom and, and enjoy the programs to hopefully kind of inspire and entice them to get their own right. and not be afraid to use it. And uh, so there's been a lot of really positives that have come out that we, you know, you kind of think, well, we don't have time to build that kind of a platform and we don't, that's not really the priority. And, you know, COVID really forced us to look at some of those things. And so it was a very productive year for us programmatically. Because now and, you have that going forward, right, Lauren? Is yeah, that right. an advantage maybe? members have said that. Uh, when we go live again, we're still going to do the virtual one too, right? Exactly. If they can't drive, they have transportation issues, they live too far. And so absolutely, it's, it's something we will continue regardless of what happens externally. How about for you personally? Have you found your own organizational methods or productivity approach <laughs> has changed? And, and what have you done to continue to manage, you know, a somewhat complex organization? It is. I'm, a, I'm an anomaly. I, I've never really worked in an office before. I've worked from home my whole career and, you know, raised four kids while working from home and, and building a business. And so I'm, I'm very capable, adaptive, whatever that word is that right, right. I'm used to it. Yeah. I have always worked from a home office. So this has been pretty normal for me. My staff's small enough that everyone pretty adopted, adapted pretty quickly. I think the important things when I was training people, to leave, people were leaving their, their corporate jobs when I was in sales and how do you work from home? Cause it, there's a, you got, there are some special things you need to be able to do. Um, certainly being self-disciplined is one of them. <laughs> there's too many distractions here. Indeed. Uh, but so some of the tips for me, number one, if you have a team that you're trying to manage is very clear, effective and frequent communication. Yep. And that's not micromanaging. That's just, making sure that that communication is all, all is frequent and both ways, not just me to them, but also them to me that they're, I'm available anytime they need to text or call or chat or whatever it is to deal with what they're dealing with. We have two set uh, meeting times, beginning of the week, end of the week to come together, all of us on a call together. What did you do this week? Cause our, our, our roles overlap a lot in a small nonprofit. Everybody wears a little bit of different hats, right? And so there is a lot of that overlap. And so you can't really do your work without having effective communication. And the other thing I've learned just as I get older, I, I write everything down. <laughs> good, good. When you're, when you're on the phone, on a call in your kitchen, sometimes you just, you're not at your desk. If you're in an office, you're used to being kind of having that mindset on, but if you're doing too many things at once. And so I'm old fashioned. I have a paper calendar. Anytime I have a meeting, the meetings on the calendar part, you flip to the page in the day. So in that day is listed everything that I need to do, notes from a call, things to follow up on. And that keeps me so I can go back and say, oh, I was on that call with Pat. And what was it that I told him I would send him? And if I flip back to that day, it'll list what it was, I what, what my action steps were. Love that. So that's, to me, that was always something I've used that for 25 years, being able to have write it down in in the places where you know you're going to find it kind of like how you track your own brain you know yeah yes. does my brain work again and so then being able to create your own system but writing things down is so important 
Love that. And you're right, because our brain, frankly, is not designed to carry all of the details, um, or at least it's going to go into overdrive and probably help us <laughs> not be as effective as we need to be if we right. don't capture it one way or another. Um, well, thank you for sharing that, Lauren. And again, I know many of our listeners are juggling that exact type of dynamic with communication and to their team as well as keeping up with everything. But let's go back to the earlier part of your nonprofit journey. Clearly, you are as successful in sales and starting and running your own business. Why'd you take the plunge into nonprofit? There is there's a really long story. There's a short story. And there's a short <laughs> answer to that, Pat. So um, I'll give you a little bit of, of all of it. You can tell me if any of that sounds interesting. I accidentally would be the one word. Um, it wasn't an intentional journey. Right. I was at the time working, Lauren, we were consulting. I was doing my own consulting work with mostly entrepreneurs and mostly female entrepreneurs. And that was kind of the niche I found myself. It wasn't an intentional niche to get there either. It's just kind of where my business led me. And one of the women that I met was an executive director for a nonprofit. And she was looking for development, culture, um, consultant to come in and help with their culture. And so I ended up working with them for three years. And that was my first experience working with a nonprofit at, at all. Wow. I, I was not, um, never really involved growing up with nonprofits. Um, I did a lot with our church, you know, at church groups, but not really in that sector. And so working with them was my first experience. And it was interesting because I was, I was consulting them from a business perspective, which I think has really shaped the way I've, I've worked with GAPS and really impacted the way our growth has been. Having had the previous experience, but then watching for three years and working from sort of the outside as the consultant, but also within their growth and working with that um, organization, seeing how much there was a need for business development, even within the nonprofit sector. So to me, it was just a really interesting coming together of almost everything that I'd always done. And the woman who, to get into this job, I, funny I say I wasn't volunteering, I was volunteering. Uh, I was actually on a retreat weekend right. with school students as a chaperone. And a woman that I'd known for a while said, hey, my dad has this nonprofit and he is they're desperately needing, looking for an executive director. She had known me for a long time. She said, I think all your skill sets are what they need. Would you be interested? And I said, I am always actively paying attention to whatever it is that is supposed to be my next thing. So interesting, right? Um, I just went. You're open to it. You're open to the possibility, I guess, at least, right? Which is kind of my whole lifestyle. Like, I, I've never become attached. This is my fifth career. So I'm right, right. <laughs> always looking for whatever might be that whatever God's going to put in my path next and, and being open to what that is. And so that's how I ended up in nonprofit. It really wasn't a sought after. Um, but yet I was, had been, I had been being prepared for it without my knowledge. And yeah. so when it showed up, it was very much kind of little pieces of all the things I had done 
that were needed in this particular role. I'm delighted you shared that. And it's, I think it's an important story to share because I know we have listeners who may well be in the for-profit arena pondering a jump like you did, or they know somebody who is thinking along these lines. So that's why I think your perspective is so valuable. And, and you articulated very well. You brought a wonderful set of skills, business acumen in particular, it seems, to gaps and nonprofit leadership. Were there any disadvantages, however, to not, quote, growing up in the nonprofit space? Oh, definitely. I mean, I was, I'm the new kid. I'm the new kid on the block in terms of not really understanding how the nonprofit world worked. And uh, it made me, I mean, it was humbling for sure to, to realize you don't know what you don't know. Right, right. <laughs> and um, so wanting to, wanting to bring my experience and yet at the same time recognizing that there's a different, there's a different way of doing things here. I would say the most, the most challenging aspect of nonprofit organizational structure is because it's not owned by anyone. There isn't, there isn't someone, the board is in charge, but they're not there all the time. So exactly. this is the boss collectively of your CEO, except they change all the time. And so the CEO most of the time has been there longer than any board members, but the board members are the ones who have a final say. That was very hard for me to get my head around. Um, it just, and I'm not a hierarchical kind of person. I've always been a very collaborative worker, very much, you know, organic structure, but there still was, there still was just very confusing. Okay. Sort of that question, who's in charge here? Yes. Yes. <laughs> More so. I've often described the ED position as a very lonely world in some respects, as you said, because in a for-profit hierarchy, as you put it, there is often clear chain of communication, but now you're reporting to 15 people or eight people or however many people are on your board. How did you get more comfortable with that? Or do, do you ever get <laughs> totally comfortable with a group of bosses who are constantly turning over? Well, I think in our, in our situation, it was a little different because we were so young. Uh, right, right. I, came on, I mean, our two founders um, are still involved. They're still on the board. Um, they, it really was the two founders and I, <laughs> the rest of the board was pretty disengaged at the time when I first right. came. In. And so that was actually easy. You know, when it was just the two of them and me, and we were kind of making decisions in that respect as a, where do we want to go? And we didn't have a lot of structure there. There, there weren't, we didn't have a, a functioning budget. We, our bylaws, I don't, no one even knew where they were, you know, it was that kind of, <laughs> but not bureaucracy either. Right. At least you didn't have maybe no. the com complications of a larger but, organization. Exactly. But that's where the challenge is, is because when we were there, it was easier, but that's not where we wanted to stay. I mean, the whole, I can, I can remember, hearing the interview. He's so we want you to grow this thing. I mean, that's why they hired me was to grow the organization. Well, within that growth, you can't keep it just the three of you having this conversation and growing this organization. Exactly. So in order for us to grow, to become a grown up organization, 
we had to create bylaws and an actual board and function that way. And the growing pains of that were extremely difficult, um, both for me and for, I think, the founders kind of letting go yes, of right. that ownership. And I've always been self-employed. So even though it wasn't my company, that's where my, that's how I function, like in a sense of ownership. And then having a board, wanting the board to be involved, and then they get too involved. And now they're in your day-to-day business. So a whole year was spent on learning roles and responsibilities. Whose lane is what? And who's supposed to be doing? What's your job? What's your job? And so we did that for a good year to 18 months of really trying to educate the board on what it means to be a board and educate. And so for me, going from a consultant role where I was in a nonprofit trying to educate, I did their board retreat, educating their board on how to function as a board. And now I'm in it. Wow. <laughs> Very different being in it than being the one coming in. And so a lot of growing pains. And yet, of course, they, of course we did. You know, of course, that's where you we have to right? some of that, I guess. Yeah, it was a challenge. But if I had expected that that was not going to happen, then there was not going to be any growth from where we were. Um, Would you have done anything differently? I mean, in other words, you had to attack multiple facets of program growth and board growth and I guess ultimately staff growth. But I'm curious, as you look back, would you have taken a slightly different path or was that simply the way you had to go? Would I have taken a slightly different path? Would you start with the board? You know, in other words, that's still where you needed to start, I guess, and getting that kind of dynamic organized? I probably would have started with myself and making sure I was better educated about what my role was. Interesting. Um, you know, it's so easy to say, well, if those people would just do their job, I mean, you know, I can point a lot of fingers, but honestly, because my background was not nonprofit, I had a very I don't want to say narrow, but just, I, I, this is the way it was supposed to be. And, and I don't know that that was necessarily right. I think it caused more friction than we needed to have. And yes, we grew and and things were successful, but it, it caused more, more rough edges maybe than we needed to have. Had I been able to be better prepared for the differences in the two sectors, um, I could have navigated better and, and been less, Frustrated. Exactly. <laughs> Maybe For less good. would have been more impact, more effective with the board. So um, that I would have, that's probably the biggest thing. Otherwise, you know, as much as it was hard, there aren't, aren't a whole lot of other things I think I would change other than just my approach. Uh, I appreciate you sharing that because again, I, I don't mean to suggest there's some kind of easy template uh, <laughs> no. for a situation like yours. It was complex. You had the founders still very much involved, yet they want uh, to, to grow and change. So that, that's a lot of moving parts. I, I wonder, did, was there any particular professional development and I mean, nonprofit professional development that was helpful to you in that early stage? Yes. Uh, in South Carolina, we have together SC is the nonprofit. It's they're a nonprofit that is kind of like the nonprofit go-to place, um, for help. And they provide. Absolutely. A lot of education. They have a tremendous website. And I went to a summit and spent all of my time at that summit going to board ED relationship sessions. 
because I really saw that if we are, and we were supposed, we are as board and CEO or ED, we are supposed to be co-leaders of the organization. Right. If that relationship is not functioning healthy in a healthy way, nothing else is going to be able to function well. You're always going to have issues and problems that you're not being as efficient as you can as an organization. I mean, that's that way in for-profit. If you've got a CEO and a CFO that don't agree, it, your business isn't going to go yes, well either. Exactly. So it, for me, that was the approach by the time. And that was in, so I'd been in a year and a half maybe. And I went on this three day and that, that was significantly impactful. And then the direction we took after that. So I see that as a pivot point for, for us. Again, it was me becoming educated about, okay, I, I knew what the roles were supposed to be. I used to consult, Yeah, indeed. <laughs> but I didn't know how to be an ED in that equation. I knew yeah. how to be consultant in that equation. And together, SC, I'm sure connected you with other fellow executive directors, I assume, right? So that that did that network help you at all? Or did you find that others simply didn't fully understand kind of the unique aspects for what you were dealing with at GAPS? I still felt very much like I was not, I wasn't finding a peer because so many people in nonprofit grow up through the organization. Exactly. So were they started as a volunteer they got involved and, and they moved up through the organization and so i didn't have there weren't a lot of other people i could find that were having that same experience um and there's pluses and minuses to it i can't i feel like i'm i'm only harping on the negative aspects of of jumping there i think there's a lot of good that comes from understanding both sectors but the i wasn't finding other people who had a shared experience gotcha and but in your defense, and I absolutely want to lift that up, while you were respectful of the sector that you entered as uh, you know, less experienced that you were, but you brought a lot of skill and, and business savvy. And I, well, I wonder if you could speak to that. As you look around at, at your colleagues, you have things to offer too that perhaps many of them don't. One of the things I noticed early was there is so, and one of the things that was so attractive to me about the nonprofit, which I would be, I would guess is probably what's attractive to a lot of other people is the mission and the heart of nonprofit. In, in the, in the business world, in the for-profit world, you sometimes just get tired of worrying about the, just the bottom line. There has to be something more than buying widgets and selling widgets. Like there has to be a bigger meaning than just how many widgets did we sell this month? And so an attraction to nonprofit is this, this humanity, this purpose, this helping, this service, this doing a good thing, that there's an attraction to that. Right. And that part of it definitely was appealing to me. But what, what I was seeing is that there's all of this heart and passion and desire to do this great work and not a lot of business acumen, not a lot of understanding about what it takes because while we're nonprofit, one of the biggest myths is that nonprofits shouldn't make a profit. <laughs> well, if you don't make a profit, you can't serve anybody. Absolutely you right. You'll have to make money in order to do the service. And, and I think that it's almost frowned upon. Like we don't want to, we don't want to make money. Well, we are a business. We're just, our organizational structure is different, but we are still a business and we have to look at ourselves as businesses 
so that we can be efficient and therefore serve the mission. So while the bottom line is not, we're not a market conscious organization, but we still have to acknowledge that we live within the market. But in essence, your recommendation would be perhaps nonprofit leaders do need to improve their business skills and business acumen. And it doesn't mean they're having to dismiss the programmatic intentions that maybe brought them to that career. But as you put it, they are not going to serve their mission if they don't have a well-run business operation. And, and it's not, I am not a, um, a CFO kind of person. I am not, you can ask my treasurer, um, <laughs> regularly um, <laughs> is made aware of my limited abilities in that area. My strengths are in organizational development. I'm, I'm really good at seeing what people should be in what roles, um, what, how, to, how to use people's strengths, how to, um, how to streamline, looking at the organization, knowing where the fat can be cut and where it can't be. That's, that's really my, I, just that vision kind of. Yeah, I can, You have good instincts okay. for that, don't you? Yep. So, so for me, that created an environment for other people to come in. So knowing, okay, this is, I can see this, this hole here. If we could fix this, if we could, we need this person in this place, or we need this program in this place, or, and that type of thing allows to develop strategic planning, to look beyond the immediate. And again, so in nonprofit world, you're so paycheck to paycheck in so many situations, you know, working in a small nonprofit, you're making your budget on a hope and a prayer. So (laughs) you, you become very consumed with the immediate. It can be challenging to look beyond I hope we make it through the next quarter, but still needing to be able to do that and, and know what is our greater context, what are we trying to do, and keeping that mission always as your horizon line. Everything, whether it's money, fundraising, new staff, a new program, a community development, whatever it is, should be held up against that mission. And if it doesn't fit, you don't do it. If that that's the only way. I don't want to become an organization that's building itself to be an organization. Like, I, right. If we're just doing this so that we can continue to make more money, so we can pay more people to make more money, so we can do more things, so that we can exist, it has to be held against the mission. And to me, that is the same as working for your business that is for profit. And so it's really a mindset as opposed to. Yes, you need certain skills and you can develop those and organizations that support nonprofit work. There are so many of them that you can become educated, but becoming educated about the business, the needs of a business, whether it is budgeting, staffing, HR, culture, strategic plan, all of those things are critical regardless of which sector you're in. Uh, So well put. In fact, uh, I guess related, because you and I have talked about this in a previous conversation about some of these conversations amongst the nonprofit and within the nonprofit community. Um, Do you see more evidence given the pandemic that is there potential for more collaboration and partnerships amongst the nonprofit community? And and you and I both have speculated, uh, are there too many nonprofits? I guess back to your point that we're kind of just head down trying to make sure we make it to the next paycheck or the next month. 
but I wonder if you could speak on the state of collaboration in the nonprofit sector. I definitely have my opinions about that. <laughs> I, I hope you'll share. Yes. <laughs> um, again, I still very much feel like the new kid when I say things like this, because sometimes um, it's frowned upon. But I absolutely think that there are too many organizations doing the same work and clamoring for the same dollars. Um, where we live is there are the nonprofit sector is either the largest or the second largest employer, you know, in the upstate of South Carolina. Wow. Collectively. Uh, everybody there, but there's a sense of, no, we want our own, whatever that is. Um, yep. Yep. Soup kitchen, children's education, whatever. I don't want to pick on anyone again. Yeah, every sector has evidence but of they, that, right? They want, uh, we want ours to have it. Meanwhile, three blocks away, someone else has theirs and you're both clamoring for money. And if there's only a certain amount of money, you get very little. And so I think there so much more could be done in the service of the missions if there was greater collaboration. And then I say that, but as our organization, there isn't really anyone else doing the work we're doing. There's really no one for us to collaborate with. <laughs> Right, um, right. Because we're the only one. So I say it. And then, you know, of course, you, you, you say something like that. Like, well, who are you going to collaborate with? Um, and so I, I feel a little bit hypocritical making that statement. We're always looking for other organizations that we can partner with, even if it's not an exact fit. Yeah, exactly. Um, Others that serve maybe a senior population, not to isolate on that alone. But perhaps yes. I think you all have done and shown good evidence of finding ways to creatively partner. If someone else has, and I think one of you mentioned, you know, how has the pandemic um, kind of put a light on this? I think one of the areas that more people, I've heard more people discuss this past year than ever is the idea of space. Right. Everybody wants their own space. Everybody wants to have their own location. And what we're realizing is that we don't all need to pay rent in our own space. <laughs> We all don't need that overhead. We, you know, as a nonprofit and you're always looking for ways to save money, where can we share space? Where can we share a meeting space or a program space? Or if we work from home, where can we, someone has a, an, a building that they only use on certain days. Why don't we do programs on the other days? Can we partner with them? And I think that we're going to see a lot more of that across all sectors. Um, just as the world starts to open back up again. I think that's such, such a good idea. And, and it, it, it answers a question I was going to ask you. All right, what do we do about it? You know, if we want to see more partnerships, but it seems to me that would be a very non-threatening conversation nonprofit leaders could have with each other. And, mm -hmm. and perhaps they find out, hey, yeah, maybe you and I could share space or find ways that are mutually beneficial. Even if the other nonprofit, Lauren, has nothing to do with the kind of mission you have, but you can always share space. Right. I, I don't, I mean, everybody needs a place to have, put round tables in and have a meeting, right? Exactly. Exactly. Like we do support groups and all of our support groups are housed, well, when they're live, um, in various um, assisted living or uh, the hospital systems, um, churches, people who like churches for us, they, they sit empty most of the week. Right. Exactly. Right. And so for us to have our own space, 
when there's all of this empty space that people, and a lot of times they want to host it. Look, we're paying for this building. Someone might as well use it. Um, so finding more people that way. And I think that area, um, also sharing resources like HR and IT. Um, I know a lot of small nonprofits, I, including us, you know, we don't have an HR department. We don't have an IT department. We can't afford to have something like that in-house. And yes, you can hire one, but what if we shared one? What if there were three or four organizations that that shared a full-time IT person or a full-time HR person? And we all shared the paying of their salary and we could afford to have that person, but now that person's employed full-time just with you know three or four organizations. So I think there are lots of ways that we Great can example. collaborate not just programmatically, because that sometimes doesn't fit. And I think that's the only place people look for collaboration is where your missions align. That's such a good point. And you're right. I think there's just more often the chance for a collision. If we're trying to merge programmatically, I think people are more intense about the ownership of that. And so you're smart to suggest there are other ways maybe we can find collaboration in terms of logistics, space, or support services, back office, um, which I think is a great thing for a nonprofit leader to consider. Well, let me ask you, speaking of HR, you lift that up, but you've been very successful, I think, both working with volunteers and developing your team. I wonder if, if there are any things you've found to help you be successful uh, identifying and, and kind of organizing talent at your organization. We are... I think that that's probably my favorite part about any type of leadership role is developing people. And so it's always been, it's always been something I've enjoyed helping people find their, find their role. Um, I believe that everybody's created with a blueprint of who they are, their strengths, weaknesses, um, passions, desires, interests, and when we align those with our work, uh, we are happier, success, more successful, we're more productive. So helping to not, not only identify what those are, but then either create a place for someone to be able to act out all of those talents and strengths, <laughs> or where right. that aligns, you know, with, with what we have. Um, so when we start, when I took over, it was just me. I, we were staff of one. And when we, I had an intern that she left and went, went, graduated, left me. <laughs> um, it was. As interns a, do, right? Interns do have to move on sometimes, but. Move on. Um, and, you know, it was funny at her when she was the senior, I, my oldest daughter was also a senior in college and, um, was away and a camera was here. And so we just decided we'd just kind of swap. She could just be my daughter and um, I'd be her mom for a while since uh, it was like being with one of my own kids. But I just, I love that age. I love 20, 18 to 22 year olds where they're just looking, who am I? What do I think and believe? Um, creating that path, realizing, oh, I'm going to graduate soon. I better figure out what I'm going to do next. And just helping them to really harness that energy, um, in the right places. So she went and took a job in Chattanooga and, um, we just stayed in touch mostly because we had developed a relationship and I don't care what sector you're in relationships are the most important thing. And so 
it, it doesn't mean that I was staying in relationship with her. So in case someday she might be able to come back and work for me, you know, there really is an agenda to relationships if they're authentic. So it's just, I was interested in what was going to happen to her. She was dynamic and outgoing and I knew she'd be successful. And so when it turned that she missed Greenville and didn't like the corporate world that she had entered, um, it just so happened to align with the day I was writing a job description for uh, my first official full-time hire, she called me and said, I'm miserable. I said, really? I might have something for <laughs> Timing you. Timing is everything. It is. And, and being open to things, um, I didn't know who we were looking for. I thought I was probably looking for an assistant, just someone to kind of dump some stuff on. <laughs> so I'd have left, less on my plate. And, you know, she brought so many more skills than just someone to kind of help me out that we really became, she became an associate director rather than an assistant to me. And those roles have continued to define. So I think part of it is relationships, not with people that you're, that you have an agenda for. Exactly. Just have relationships with people and listen to them and be open and, and keeping an open mind as to what comes next. And Knowing, so that's the first, that one side, the other side is knowing what your organization is needing, knowing, being very aware of what that next step would be. Um, not necessarily saying, oh, we can't afford to hire somebody. Right. Like I could tell you right now, the three new hires I would do if we could, because I know what that would do to help streamline our efficiency. So when we get to the point where we're ready, it's not, well, what would that, you know, what are we desperate for a this or no, I know exactly what our next step would be in our growth for what our new hires would be. And so our second, so she was our first and we kind of split everything. She took half the business. I took half the business and um, really in a mentoring kind of way, trying to help her learn as on the fly. Um, and honestly, we joke because she's technically been at Gaps longer than me because she was an intern the semester before, before. you started. <laughs> so she reminds me of that. Um, you know, <laughs> but um, so developing her, and then you know we brought on. We kind of have a very interesting circumstance. Our creative communications director is actually my husband. Right. Right. Um, we have built four businesses together over the last 25 years. And I'm, I'm usually the front person and he's the behind the scenes. He's created all of my branding, all of my websites, all any publicity or marketing materials. He is the graphics guy. And so when I started with gaps, the first thing he did was said, Oh, that logo is terrible. <laughs> and so I said, uh, well, do you know somebody that maybe could help me with that? And so really I started on September 1st. I'm pretty sure he started on September 2nd as a volunteer. That's hilarious. And so for two years, he worked as a volunteer to the point where he, and he was working at GE at the time where he was putting in way too many hours. We were just growing so quickly. And so, you know, went to the board and said, look, I realized there's a challenge here for all of you in that this is my husband right. but he's already doing the work. And he's been doing the work and I can hire him more <clears throat> cheaply than I could hire somebody else. <laughs> the the, the um, friends and family discount, right? Yeah, something like that. But it, 
it was very difficult for them to kind of see, well, how does that work? I mean, it's yeah. your husband. So, you know, what happens if you disagree? And trying to explain, we've done this for so long. We have worked together from home in this capacity for our whole married life. So for us, it was just normal, but I could see how that could be a little bit suspicious, maybe is the right word, um, confusing right. other people. So he's actually been full-time um, almost two years uh, as our communications director, IT slash computer slash new software slash whatever I need you to do right now that has to do with things I don't understand. <laughs> so, but but from an HR perspective there, you do have it kind of uh, organized such that I guess he can report directly to the board on some things or how, how do you kind of differentiate, you know, the HR angle of a family member on the team? We, yes, we had to write lots of policies about, you know, who does his reviews and, you know, I don't give him raises. I don't give, I don't don't write checks to him, you know, anything like that. Um, It, he, his review is done by the board chair. I give my review to the board chair, you know, like this is what, because they don't aren't aware of his day to day for the most part. Sure. Um, so day to day is as it would be with any employee, but when it comes to anything like raises, reviews, um, goal setting, things like that, it funnels down from the board chair uh, the same way it would for if it, if he reported direct to them. So we work around those those issues, so there isn't any conflict of interest in terms of you know money or um, benefits or things like that. Well, so I'm, then our so that I'm has. Sorry. That, so that's our, and then our last hire was, um, you know, she came in and was just going to do volunteer coordinating and events. And within a month or two, it was like, this is not streamlined, right? This doesn't work. This, these things disconnect. So we shifted everybody around. Camber's now complete development director role. Robin is um, member relations coordinator and volunteer because they overlap so much. And, you know, Glenn is that other bucket. <laughs> <laughs> right. And once we did that, knowing Robin's gift is people. She, she will call, she's the one who calls all the members. She loves it. She loves engaging with the people. Putting her on events was just, it, you could see the dysfunction in her and in the event. She just didn't fit her personality. And when we hired her, I hire for culture fit. This is a good fit for who we are. I can teach you how to do things, but yes. But, but I, I need the right person. And she absolutely was the right person. We just needed to put her in the right role. And now having the four lanes that we have, um, it was amazing. Within a month, the complete turnaround in her, uh, in her attitude, in her confidence, in her productivity uh, was amazing. So we are now a full-time staff of four which I know sounds really small to a lot of you, but it's all relative times bigger than what we used to be. (laughs) Exactly. It's a lot bigger than it was. And kudos to you on several fronts. One, your ability to maintain a network of of what I would call, you know, talent. Um, And you weren't doing it with a hidden agenda. Um, In fact, I want to give a shout out to Camber Parker, who was in fact, my guest on episode number 80, a fantastic guest. And uh, lots of insight in the young professional mindset, but she certainly lifted you up, Lauren, uh, for maintaining that connection. And I just think all nonprofit leaders ought to invest some of their time staying connected with talented people, even if you don't have a specific agenda for them, 
because, uh, you know, time will tell. There will be opportunities to connect, and you're such a good example of that, as well as, frankly, talent in your own family as one whose daughter, um, in my case, works also at our firm. So I'm a big believer. If you have talent right there in front of you, uh, look for ways to, to engage it. But um, I think that that's probably something that we did. Um, being self-employed the whole time my children were growing up, if mama was doing it, I guess we're all doing it. Is yes. kind of how that yes. is. Our event last spring, my daughter was the chair volunteer. Um, my son has volunteered and has become actually one of the a personal care partner for one of our members. Here he goes. He does his grocery shopping for him. So yeah, anytime I so- seem to get involved, my whole family. Suddenly- <laughs> it is well, a family affair. Right. <laughs> well, uh, I guess, Lauren, as we move to the end of our discussion here, let me ask you this. Where does GAPS go from here? What, what are the strategic headlines, I guess, you're pondering as you think about the future of GAPS? Currently, we are working on that. Patton. Oh, good, good. <laughs> we had our Timely question, right? Right. We had a our board retreat a couple of weeks ago, and I think the challenge we're facing right now is the same challenge we're all facing. How, how do you make a strategic plan in a world that is seen has no foreseeable concrete future? And right. what's funny about that is when has it been concrete, foreseeable? We just lived with the illusion that it was. Um, Interesting, right. I keep trying to remind myself of that. Well, we don't know what's going to happen in six months because we did two years ago. <laughs> no, not exactly. Um, so I think that that is combating that challenge in our own minds to say we plan with the best that we know and then whatever happens, happens because that's all we can do. And so we actually had a intentional an intentional conversation about only doing a six-month goal because we could really see what good we could do in those six months. And then in six months, revisiting just because the world is so different right now. Nice. So that's the time horizon you're kind of working with right now, six months at a time, maybe? Yes. We have very concrete goals for the next six months. And as we're looking at a strategic plan, you know, we are, our intention has always been Greenville County. That's where we focus. But because there's no one else in the upstate that does the work we do, we have 50% of our members are outside of Greenville County because they come to Greenville to see the physicians who then refer them to us. And so they become one of our members. They come to programs, they engage. And now with virtual platforms, they can engage from hours away. And so the conversation is, you know, do we, do we expand over the next three to five years? Are we looking at hubs in in other counties, you know, a hub in Anderson, hub in Spartanburg and running programs that are more, you know, in a circle out from those hubs. Right. Is that the direction we go or do we go deeper here? It's estimated that there's 12,000 people that live here with Parkinson's. We're serving 1,500. There's still a lot of people that we aren't meeting. Um, We have the lack of education, particularly underserved communities. When you look at whether it's the Hispanic, African-American communities, people who are just living in an, in an uneducated environment even where they don't know um, and they don't have access to the knowledge. How many people are living there with this disease that could be helped, that could be on medication and be and getting exercise and support? So there's a lot of work to be done going deeper in this area. And yet 
there's a lot of work to be done everywhere. So as we look at our resources, human and financial, what are we capable of doing? I think the benefit of the virtual platform is we can go wider without taxing us too extensively financially or humanly. Um, just providing links and access to what we do on a virtual platform. And so that's really where I see the conversation going, you know, after this year, let's, you know, getting through 2021, we have some very specific goals that need to be addressed right now. And that at the same time, looking at where do we go from here? Do we, do we really just focus, do we become a Greenville only organization and really make that our focus. I, I think my my difficulty with that is my heart hurts for the person who lives outside of Greenville exactly. County. Exactly. Who could benefit oh. from your services, right? I say no. Sorry, we can't help you. And right. I know we can't help everybody. I'm told that regularly, but yeah. <laughs> we want to help as many people as we can for as long as we can. And and so that's as we look ahead, knowing if we are going to grow and we are going to expand, we are going to need to expand in other ways too. Um, staff, resource. You know, if we end up with hubs, we need program directors at each of those hubs and then a regional director to oversee. And, and so there are, there are lots of big dreams. And yet right now, you know, we are trying to make sure that our members that are stuck at home know how to use an iPad so they can see their grandkids, you know, exactly. <laughs> so you this really big idea to this sweet woman who was on our call on Wednesday, who said, I feel like a kid in a candy store with this machine. I get to see all your faces. <laughs> like tickled. And you know, there's, there's those heart things that you remember. Yeah, we we're doing something good here. We are impacting people and we are giving them that hope and a little bit of a uh, higher quality of life. And, and that's why we're here. That's so well put. And I'm grateful for your sharing, you know, as you bring to your leadership, the business acumen that you've stated earlier, but it is uh, an effort of the heart too. And so I applaud what you're doing. Love the checklist, if you will, of the questions you're asking in terms of your current and longer term strategic planning. I just think that's so valuable to our listeners who are, are in a similar sort of strategic planning kind of conundrum. How far do I look ahead and things like that? And so, Lauren, for all this, I'm grateful. I, I, I wonder, again, going all the way full circle, uh, is there any final advice you'd offer someone, maybe like you, pondering a jump from, quote, for-profit to nonprofit, or is there anything else you would want to share with someone thinking along those lines? Well, I suppose it would be, you know, you asked if I would do anything different, differently than I did this time. And, and so I, th I think that would be my advice for someone looking to jump is to really educate yourself about the differences in the two sectors and as an executive director, what your role really is and have, have a great clarity about that. Not what it is, but also what it isn't. And, and have the confidence to be able to walk in that role. Um, I think I, I think I waffled because I, is this my job? Is this your job? And then you end up overstepping or you don't step up. And um, so I think that if you're looking to move into the nonprofit, be educated about the difference and, and how leadership and hierarchy and roles and responsibilities really works. Um, it will make you a more valuable asset to the organization that you end up working with. And it will also bring you a lot more confidence, which then makes you feel like you are really, that you're being successful, you know, that you are making that 
making that difference. It's fantastic. Lauren, like everything else you've shared, grateful again for that, uh, the wisdom and lots of food for thought for uh, those of our listeners, both in a nonprofit leadership role and aspiring to be one. So I'm grateful for that. If if I can ask for one more parting gift from you, of course, as you know, I ask each guest uh, uh, for a book recommendation, maybe something that you've read that's been meaningful to you along your journey. Well, I know that you had asked about this and I there was a time when I was reading four and five books at a time. I, <laughs> I tell all of my sales people, you know, leaders are readers. If you're not reading, then you're not leading. And so you have to continue and be learning, willing to learn just all of those things. And so when you say pick a book, <laughs> that's a hard question, isn't it? <laughs> give me a category, a time frame, a decade. And so it's hard for me to pick one. But anytime anyone asks me this question, this is always the first book that comes to my mind. And so I guess it's the one that is the most impactful. It's actually called Virtuous Leadership, Excellent. An Agenda for Personal Excellence. And it's by Alexandra Havard. And to me, it's in order to be a good leader, you have to lead yourself first. Um, I have a background with the John Maxwell training group. And, you know, he talks a lot about the law of the lid and making sure that you are, um, leading yourself well first and to lead ourselves well as driving for personal excellence, becoming the person we were created to be is living in holiness and doing that, becoming your best self will automatically make you a better leader, a better person, a better friend, a better spouse. And so I love the book because it impacts everything and it doesn't compartmentalize us into let's become a good business person. Right. It's let's become a good person and then our businesses will be good too. Love that. Delighted to lift it up. Uh, in addition to all of the great resources you mentioned during our conversation, Lauren. So thank you for the book. Thank you for the other advice. And of course, I want to make very clear in our show notes, how can people find out more about you and the great work you're doing through gaps? Well, Pat and I, I, yes, what I said to you, we were talking before, um, love having the conversation. You and I have such a similar opposite path. Um, so thank, <laughs> right. you, thank you for inviting me um, to share. Um, you're right. As EDs, sometimes it's lonely and knowing there's other people just talking the same talk is helpful. So what the work you're doing is very valuable to all of us who are in this, in this role. So I appreciate thank you. you. Having me and I appreciate the time. And yeah, please find us uh, online. We're gapsonline.org. And you can check out the programs and the things that we've done and what our mission is and a little bit more about our staff, but ways to get involved, volunteer, um, check out some of our programs because they're virtual, regardless of where you're listening to us from. So it's gapsonline.org is the best place to reach us. It's fantastic. Lauren, thank you for all of your wisdom and for joining me on the path. Thank you, Penn. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Lauren as much as I did and came away with some really practical ideas that can guide your professional journey or maybe help you consider how you can be a better leader for your nonprofit. Don't forget the show notes are available on our website, patentmcdowell.com. You can find out more about Lauren, more about the Greenville Area Parkinson's Society, and many of the other resources we discussed. As always, Thanks for sharing this episode with someone else on the path. And if you haven't already, make sure you don't miss a single episode. Go to the podcast page and subscribe, pattonmcdowell.com. 
and you'll see links to Apple, Spotify, and all of the primary podcast platforms. Don't miss out on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday, as well as bonus features we're producing at least once a month. You know, if you like this episode, you'll also enjoy Lauren's colleague, Camber Parker. She was my guest on episode number 80, and we discussed the ever-important topic of attracting young professional talent to your nonprofit. Well, thanks again for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.